0: Of my top mileage days, I think I had a day where I did over 270 miles. There were a couple of days I did over 260. The first day I did 250. And actually I was averaging 206 miles for the first two weeks, which I was pretty pleased with. My goal for the entire race was to do at least a double century a day.
1: Hey folks welcome to the adventure sports podcast i'm your host mason Gravley. man this one goes way back 2016 is when this episode came out and uh travis was hosting at the time travis and kurt but travis did this one and it's with felix wong who who did the Trans Am bike race or you know transamerica bike race um it's known as the transam now but it's a essentially a you know, huge bike race across America, self-supported, um, it's, it's pretty intense. And as you can hear in the intro, there's, uh, some very serious miles to the people who are really trying to compete, you know, upwards of 200 miles a day or more, And so Felix is here to talk about that. I don't have any updates or anything. Thanks for everyone who has left a review, who has supported us on Patreon, and who has uh, reached out in the podcast. It's been really cool. I don't have anything else on my end, uh, but I just hope this inspires you. It gets you out there, and you do something like this one day where you can be on the show.
2: Welcome back to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is Travis. So today with me is Felix Wong. Felix is a cyclist, a rock climber, a mountaineer, an ultra runner, a triathlete, just to mention a few of his adventurous hobbies. Uh, he's up in Fort Collins, so he's up, uh, Well, what do you say, Felix, 20 miles north of me, something like that?
0: I'm about maybe 40, 45, 45. Miles north of Boulder.
2: Is it that far north? Jeez, I, I was thinking about forty minutes. So okay. Anyway, Felix is up north of me in Colorado. Uh, he moved to Fort Collins from California, from Silicon Valley, and he's just really been into into an adventurous lifestyle. If you go to his site, it's uh, Felix Wong, W O N G dot com. Um, and you can see all of his writings. He keeps a great blog post about everything he's done uh, in the world of adventure and uh, something to to read up and to, uh, to follow on. So today, Felix is going to be talking about the Trans-American Bike Race. This is a 4,200-mile race across the country of the United States. And if I can get him to talk about it a little bit, we're going to talk about the Tour Divide, which is a 2,700-mile race from Canada to Mexico. So... Uh, Enough with the intros, Felix. Welcome to the show.
0: Well, thanks, Travis. Thanks for having me on the show. It's always a pleasure to share my passion of cycling and adventure with the world.
2: (laughs) Well, let's do it then. So today we're going to be talking about bicycle uh, riding and racing. So give me a little bit of a background on you. How did you end up getting into uh, competitive uh,
0: cycling? Well, I was exposed to bikes at a pretty young age, When I was five years old my mom and dad bought me a little BMX bike and I remember at that age I would be helping fix my cousin's bike but what really got me to foster a keen interest in cycling was in middle school when my friend Brian would talk about how he wanted to bike over to his hometown of Turlock, California which was 40 miles away from our middle school and at that time just sounded like such an outrageous distance. It just sounded so far. I'm not sure if he ever did it or not, but a couple years later, then I would buy my first road bike. It was a $5 garage sale special that basically Mm -hmm. had everything wrong with it. It had perpetually exploding tires, but at the same time, I also was checking out editions of Bicycling Magazine from the local library. I would read, every single edition from cover to cover, I remember reading about the race across America, which was a relatively new race at the time. And I don't think I ever truly believed that maybe this was something I could do one day, but it did plant the idea of not just biking across the country, but from racing from the Pacific ocean to the Atlantic ocean. And as Time went on, and I got more experience cycling. Definitely, racing from Sea the Shining Sea became something that was on my bucket list.
2: So early on, you just you learned about this race, and you thought one of these days I might actually try that. Now, obviously, I, I've had to think this is not your first race, right?
0: It absolutely was not my first race. <laughs> <Okay. I> have... <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> man, that's a pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, no, I have. Over 20 years of ultramarathon cycling experience, my very first bicycle ride, it wasn't a race. It was a century ride in Stockton, California, which is where I was attending high school. It was called the Delta Century. One day over lunch in high school, I was talking with friend Ken Liu about cycling. And he was very athletic. He ran, he swam, he rollerbladed. He also rode bikes. And I really didn't do any of that except I rode my bike maybe like five miles, 10 miles here and there. Nothing really that long. But again, I had fostered a very keen interest in cycling. And so we're talking about the Delta Century. And I said, oh, sure, I, I would be interested in doing that. Well, we entered and I actually ended up borrowing a fairly decent bicycle for that since my $5.10-speed wasn't going to cut it. I borrowed a Bianchi with Campagnolo components. It had a genuine Brooks leather saddle that was a literal pain in the butt after seven miles. Mm -hmm. But I remember after 20 miles, I was feeling okay. By 30 miles, I was already bonking. My legs were completely cramping. Ken behind me on his costco mountain bike that had a speedometer mounted on the handlebars he was yelling out felix we're only going 10 miles an hour are you sure you can make it to then? we still have <laughs> 70 miles to go and i was just apologizing profusely and i was saying yeah i'm gonna try to hang in there well we got to the next rest stop we spent quite a bit of time there i refueled i drank a lot more water i got something of a second wind and that wasn't to say that we we're ever going fast. I mean, I still had to dismount and walk my bike up little hills that were about the size and steepness of, say, like an, a highway overpass. But we got to the end. It took us about 10 and a half hours, and I was just completely hooked on cycling after that. It was such a great adventure. It was such a great sense of accomplishment, such a memorable ride, that ever since then... I made a point of riding at least one century ride a year. In fact, since 1996 I've ridden at least a double century a year, so I have like a 20 or 21 year streak going back a couple of decades. In addition to double centuries, which is probably my favorite distance. I've done other bike races like Paris-Brest-Paris, Paris. it's the oldest bike race in the world, dates back to 1890 predates the modern Olympics and the Tour de France. It's 1,200 kilometers going from Paris to Brest and back to Paris. I've also done the Tour Divide, like you mentioned, in 2008. The very first edition was one of the first, or one of the original eight finishers of the Tour Divide. In 2011, I did the Furnace Creek 508. It's a 508-mile race in Death Valley, Set a age group record for the classic bike division, which stipulated riding a bicycle using 1983 technology or older, <laughs> including a luggage steel frame, 32 spoke wheels, down tube shifters with no indexing, and a six-speed free wheel. Also had to use toe clips and straps. That was another great adventure. So I've done Quite a few ultra distance adventures before tackling the Trans Am bike race in 2015.
2: (laughs) That's pretty cool. So that Furnace Creek 500 was the one where you had to use the older bike. That's a a neat concept. I've never heard of that. But for somebody that had a good athletic ability but didn't necessarily have the funds to buy an expensive bike, and let's face it, bikes are not cheap these days, that's something they could enter into. I mean, obviously you can pick up one of these bikes on Craigslist and, and go at it inexpensively. So what, that's a
0: neat concept. Where is that held? That's held originally in Death Valley. Then a few years ago, Death Valley actually closed the national park to events like that. So it actually got moved, I think to Western Nevada. So my course record is safe because the course has changed, but, um, it's been one of the premier events to actually qualify for the race across America. It dates back well over 20 years. Wow.
2: That's cool. That's cool. I'll have to check into that. So the Paris-Brest-Paris ride, I had seen that one come up and another one I hadn't heard of. Tell me a little bit more about that. You said it's 1200 kilometers from Paris to Brest back to Paris, obviously. Um, whats uh, Tell me a little bit from that, a couple
0: stories from it, maybe. The history... Of The event is really interesting because, again, it is the oldest bike race in the world. It's actually a race where Michelin, the tire manufacturer, became famous because back in those days, people were riding bikes with solid tires, the solid rubber tires. And Michelin was just a very small company. They made one of the first pneumatic tires. And I think in the first edition of Paris Press Paris, the winner was riding Michelin tires and that put the tire manufacturer on the map and now it's a huge company. Wow. So it dates back a long time. Also, another interesting thing about it was when it was first held, doctors did not believe anyone could ride such a distance. They thought it was equivalent to overdosing on arsenic. <laughs> and yet, amazingly, people finished this bike race without gears a lot of them on solid tires. I think the winner, he broke a crank arm and was pedaling with one leg for something like five hours, something ridiculous like that. And I think he finished the race in 70 hours, which was a respectable time.
2: Wow, that's pretty crazy. And we're talking about 750 miles. That's, uh, that's a good trek on old equipment like that. I can't imagine riding
0: 750 miles on solid tower- tires. Right, and I want to make the point that it's continuous. It's not like the Tour de France, which is divided into individual stages. No, it's one race. It's one distance. If you have to sleep, that's counted in your time. So it's one continuous race. The Tour Divide and the Trans Am bike race is like that also.
2: Yeah. Okay. So let's go into the Trans Am bike race. Now you had dreamt about doing this for, for quite some time. And then the... Now at that time, did you say you knew about the bike race or it came about I mean, because I think the route was there, but the race just started in OA, in right? So this that's, race came about and you said, hey, that's what I've been wanting to do. Let's do that.
0: That's correct. So okay. the Trans-Am Bicycle Trail has been in existence since the bicentennial of the United States, hmm. 1976. So it's been around for 40 years now. However, the bike race started in 2014, and unfortunately, I only heard about it about maybe three or four days before the race was actually held. So I couldn't enter it in 2014. That would have been a great year for me to enter. I certainly would have entered it if I had heard about it earlier. But once I heard about it, I made plans to do it in 2015. So when I was talking about the seed being planted of racing from coast to coast, initially I was thinking the race across America because that was the first coast to coast race. However, there were things about the race across America that had deterred me. One of them was just the expense of the entire race. There's a lot of logistical challenges, including you need your own crew. You need to have usually like half a dozen crew members. You put them up in hotels. You're renting a couple of vehicles. There's gas. There's lodging. People who do the race across America, even on a bare bones budget, would easily spend like $12,000. Wow. And for me, I've always been more attracted to kind of lower key, lower budget events. And the tour divide is a good example of it. The tour divide, there's no entry fees. There's no prizes. But there's also very minimal rules. It's just You start at one point in Banff, Canada. You finish at the Mexico border in Antelope Wells in New Mexico. You have to follow a certain route and you can't get support from anyone, at least not pre-planned support. And the sport has to be commercial. Like, you know, obviously you can stop at a convenience store and buy supplies along the way. You can also mail supplies to yourself in advance by USPS. But you can't have, for example, a friend bring you supplies along the coast. That would get you an immediate disqualification. So I was always attracted To ultra-distance cycling, that was self-supported, where it's all about rugged individualism. So when the Trans Am bike race came along in 2014, I instantly knew I wanted to do this because it went from coast to coast. It was self-supported. It was basically every person for himself or herself. And that's how I came about to do the Trans Am bike race. So how do you get
2: yourself prepared to do something this big. I mean, it's 4,200 miles. We're talking, what, about 24 days of writing. Um, How do you get yourself set up as far as the logistics of it? I mean, obviously, you have to find a room or or a place to stay for each one of those nights. So do you plan that ahead or do you just kind of wing it, not knowing truly what your itinerary is?
0: There is... A bit of planning you can do ahead of time by purchasing maps from the Adventure Cycling Association, which came up with the official route of the Trans America Bicycle Trail. So you can see very clearly on these maps where hotels are available. But my strategy actually initially was to stay in hotels as little as possible, because from doing the Tour Divide, where I stayed in hotels maybe only... I want to say seven, eight, nine, or maybe 10 times during that race. And that race took me 27 days. I felt that the hotels were actually slowing me down because I had to check in. I would linger longer to shower, to be texting. You know, I would be sleeping in a nice warm bed. It would be kind (laughs) of hard to get out of bed. Then I would have to check out. So during that particular race, I thought it was – making me lose time. So my initial strategy for the Transcend bike race was to not stay in hotels, and I would just sleep under a tree on the side of the road. And I actually had to do that quite a bit. I actually really didn't have a choice. And, for example, eastern Oregon, there's nothing out there. It's basically just a desert. You're, you'll be lucky to see a tree in some places. I remember there were a number of nights when it was past midnight and I was starting to look for places where I could get like three or four hours of sleep at. And I just never could find a really a good sleeping spot. And I would ride on for another half hour, another hour, another hour and a half. And ultimately there were, I think two or three nights when I ended up sleeping behind the guardrail off of the highway, just behind it in my bivy sack. So I could Here, if there was a car coming, fortunately there's only maybe like one car coming each hour, whizzing by at 60 miles per hour, maybe only about 10, 15 feet away from where I was sleeping. But that's what I had to do for a lot of the nights. Now, later in the race, especially in the eastern United States, there were a lot more hotels that gave me the option of staying in. And... I started to stay in hotels more and more and I started to see the advantage of staying in hotels where I could take a shower. I could get a good three or four solid hours of sleep. It was just easier to sleep in a bed than on the ground, as you can imagine. But it also helped me save energy. There were a couple nights in the Appalachians where I got caught in a thunderstorm and I crawled into my bivy sack. One time was underneath a picnic table and water still was dripping onto my bivy sack and it turned out my bivy sack wasn't waterproof. (laughs) Bad time to uh, find out. (laughs) And then I was just shivering like the entire night and I was wasting so much energy just trying to stay warm. Not only did it... Prevent me from getting out and waking up or waking up and getting out of my bivy sack at a prompt planned hour. But I just was wasting a lot of energy and getting enough calories for this ride, as you can imagine, is pretty tough. I mean, when you're biking 19 or 20 hours a day, you're burning a lot of calories and it's almost impossible to replace all of them.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And if you're out there sleeping on the side of the road or under a picnic table in the the cold, damp weather, your body is burning even more calories overnight just to, to keep the heat going. And, you know, so trying to get that many calories in in the first place and then burning them 24 hours <laughs> around the clock is uh, is that much worse. Well, you almost had me convinced that sleeping on a on a heavy root system underneath the tree is probably way the, the way to go just to kind of spark you to get up and get going, but maybe not. Maybe it is worth uh, getting a little bit of rest because I can't imagine riding 24 days, and I think we're talking 175 miles a day on, on average, and then going to sleep under those conditions. That doesn't
0: sound very nice. Yes, I agree. And I think if I were to do it again, I would spend more time in hotels than I actually did,
2: yeah, I think the hotels and some discipline are the way to go from the sounds of it,
0: right,
1: as weird as this sounds, you know what, one of my favorite desserts is at the end of a you know a good meal, a long day, and you just want to relax. A bowl of cereal. I love cereal. Don't get it as much as I used to, you know, especially as a kid. But uh, the biggest reason is there, there's really, you know, it's not healthy at all. You know, the cereal that we like, it's that sugary. Carb-loaded, just empty calories is really all it is, uh, but it's just so good so t- sometimes. But that is where Magic Spoon has stepped in and said, you know what, adults like cereal? Let's make some healthy cereal that actually tastes like cereal, something good, something indulgent. And so they have come up with a zero-sugar, high-protein, low-carb, very tasty cereal. It's keto-friendly, it's gluten-free, it's grain-free, soy-free, GMO-free, and it comes in four different flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry. Uh, that covers pretty much all the bases of everything that uh, that I would indulge in. And so if you're looking for kind of that 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 craving satisfier of, of having a great bowl of cereal, something I actually just had, um, but without the guilt attached to it, Magic Spoon is your answer. If you'd like to try some, go to magicspoon.com slash ASP for Adventure Sports Podcast and grab yourself a variety pack today. And if you don't absolutely love it, they have a hundred percent money back guarantee. And again, you know, New Year's is coming up. We're all trying to be a new a new self. Maybe it's a bowl of cereal to start your day that can help you do that. MagicSpoon.com slash ASP and you can use the code ASP for free shipping. All right. Now on to the adventure.
2: Okay, so you know, like I said, we're we're talking an average of 175 miles um a day is what it works out to. But obviously some days go long and some days go short depending on the uh type of terrain and what part of the country you're in. What were some of your longer days that you experienced?
0: Yes. There was one stretch and it was in the middle of the United States through eastern Colorado into Kansas, where I actually did 310 miles in a 24-hour period. That was something I was pretty proud of. Wow. Although 10 or 11 of those miles were actually off-course miles because I did a really bonehead thing. of I stopped at a vending machine in the middle of nowhere, and I bought a Coke. And at that time, I was wearing a camelback, and I took the camelback off, and I drank this Coke, and I proceeded on. And it wasn't until five and a half miles later that (laughs) I realized that I left my Camelback, which had a lot of my supplies, including tools and basically some life-saving supplies, back at this vending machine. So I actually had to turn around and go back for it. Ultimately, I only lost about 40 minutes, but um, that's what happens when you're sleep-deprived. Right. Sometimes you endlessly, you needlessly do needless miles like that. So there was that stretch I did 310 miles. Of my top mileage days, I think I had a day where I did over 270 miles. There were a couple of days I did over 260. The first day I did 250. And actually, I was averaging 206 miles for the first two weeks, which I was pretty pleased with. My goal for the entire race was to do at least a double century a day. However, then the last nine days of the race, my mileage really dropped off because I got this condition called Shermer's neck, which really limited my riding. Shermer's neck is a condition where your neck muscles fatigue to the point where you can no longer hold up your head. Mm. It's named after a cyclist named Michael Shermer. was one of the first racers in the race across America. It's a condition that basically only cyclists get who had been biking at least 500 miles, have been doing a 500 mile race. So I imagine that there can't be more than maybe a dozen or two dozen people a year who get Schirmer's neck. I was only slightly aware of what this condition even was. I Remotely remember reading about it maybe 10 or 15 years ago. I've never got it in one of my other races, so I never thought I would get it. But I got it after catching up to basically all of the leaders of the race, except for the eventual winner who was this way ahead of us in Pittsburgh, Kansas. At that time, I was flying high. I was feeling good. The day after that, that's when I started to notice that when I was riding in my arrow bars, I could no longer see the road. I just couldn't pick up my head enough to see the road ahead of me. And then I had to transition over to the hoods of my bike. And I rode like that for maybe six or eight hours. Then later in the day, when it became nighttime, I had to be riding on the tops of the handlebars just to be able to see the road. And from then on, I think I was in Missouri by that point. That's where my mileage just went way downhill. I mean, I was trying to just initially, I was kind of in denial of the problem, and I was just riding through it. I still put in pretty good mileage, but then it just became so unsafe riding with Shermer's neck that I was stopping more. I was trying to do things like ice it, and it just really diminished my riding. Now, how I tried to deal with it was well first i went on the internet and i tried to read about solutions that other racers particularly in the race across america who have tremors neck what they did to deal with it some of their solutions included duct taping the back of their helmet to their saddle or tying if they were female their ponytail to their sports bra or their heart rate monitor. (laughs) Just to hold their head up? Yeah, just to hold your head up. (laughs) Those solutions sounded really dangerous to me. And also, I didn't have a crew. So for hours, I just kept trying to think what else I could do. And ultimately, my solution was to rotate the arrow bars on my bike from horizontal to vertical mm-hmm. so that I could be riding with my hand on the top of the arrow bars. And it was kind of like riding a cruiser.
2: Yeah. let you sit up a little bit better.
0: Yeah. I could sit up a lot better. It was comfortable for two hours. I was riding with a giant smile on my face, but then reality hit when I realized that, you know, this was actually it was slowing me down. I was basically air braking whenever I was riding on the flats. I couldn't really descend very well because For descending, especially in the Appalachians where there are a lot of blind curves, the roads are very steep, you want to be covering the brakes. And to cover the brakes, I basically had to stand out of the saddle with my crotch pressed against the stem of the bike just to be able to see the road. But then all the weight was at the front of the bike. And if I was to brake hard, then I would go over the handlebar. So I was... Descending at maybe one-third the speed. I normally would descend that so I couldn't descend very well I couldn't climb well in this position, but it was a position That allowed me to finish the race, right? I yeah. Tried a few other things like a neck brace That basically just overheated me and I discarded that after 40 miles There were a number of miles especially during the last day where I was riding with one hand and using my other hand to prop up my chin just so I could see the road. Uh, it was definitely dangerous and kind of scary, but that's how I managed to get through the last 1,100 miles with Schirmer's neck. Well, and even
2: with all of that, dealing with the the injury, you finished eighth place, and
0: which made you uh, the third American finisher, right? Yes, I was really pleased with that because – I was in seventh or eighth place for almost the entire race until I got to Kansas. And that's when I really started gaining on the others. And again, when I got to Pittsburgh, Kansas, I actually was in the same spot as the other leading riders aside from the winner. Then the day after then, you know, they got a head start on me and I just never caught them again with Schirmer's neck. So I was pleased that, While I was dealing with Schirmer's neck, I really only lost one position. It was to another American. He caught me with, I think, 370 miles to go. So it was just with two days to go. And he actually beat me by about, I think, 12 or 13 hours. So it ended up not really being close. I was kind of almost glad for that because I would have been kicking myself uh, for not maybe trying a little harder if if he only beat me by a couple hours. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, so... Even though I was dealing with what was a serious condition, I managed to keep my head on straight, you know, despite my neck not being able to keep my head on straight, but, um, and just kept my wits about me and just kept plodding along. My mileage did drop off significantly, but I kept on going and made it to then in relatively good position.
2: Wow. Well, and that is out of 38 entries in 2015, just to put it in perspective. So that's that's pretty impressive uh, to go through all that and still finish eighth out of 38. So nice job. Thank you. Well, to also put it in perspective, I wanted to just go through the route real quick. This has got to be uh, one of the most amazing experiences. This thing leaves Astoria, Oregon. It goes down Highway 101, and then it cuts across Oregon into Idaho, touches the southwestern uh, corner of Montana, down diagonally through Wyoming, down into Colorado, uh, to Pueblo, and then across Kansas, Missouri, Illinois, Kentucky, uh, and then into Virginia, and finishes up in Virginia at uh, Yorktown. So just to, to give the listeners uh, uh, a map to, to view, I just wanted to lay that out. What was the most, really the most amazing part of that ride? I mean, I can just imagine... This whole, I mean, off into the East Coast and then this whole area in the Pacific Northwest, riding through that day after day, it must have been amazing.
0: It was absolutely amazing. It hit so many beautiful areas, including Yellowstone, the Grand Tetons, of course, the Rocky Mountains, the Appalachians. It certainly was not the most direct route from the Pacific to the Atlantic. For example, the race across America, which also goes from West to East, is just over 3,000 miles Whereas this race is 4,200 miles, so <laughs> you, you can see that it certainly wasn't the most direct way, but it was a route that the Adventure Cycling Association deemed as one of the most beautiful routes. Now, the flip side of that was it was also an extremely challenging route. Aside from the miles in the Midwest, it just had a lot of climbing I think listeners would be surprised to hear that Colorado actually had the second least most amount of climbing of any state in this bike race. I think Kansas had the least amount, of course, that's like perfectly flat, but I think Colorado had the second least, the states with the most amount of climbing were Virginia, Kentucky, and Oregon. And there's so many areas that were Just amazing and inspiring from a scenery aspect. I especially enjoyed the West, going through Oregon, going over Mackenzie Pass, through the desert, into Idaho. Idaho is this spectacularly gorgeous, especially the northern parts of it. And then, of course, you go through Yellowstone, the Grand Tetons. Really enjoyed coming into our home state of Colorado and even Kansas. A lot of people complain about how boring Kansas is, but I enjoyed it just because it was flat. The winds, which people complain about, yeah, they were bad in sections, but there were also times when I had a tailwind.
2: I was gonna say they're probably are back most of the time, which was pretty <laughs> refreshing after all that climbing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I was making great time. The Appalachians were really nice also, but the sad thing about it was I couldn't really see much of it because I had Schirmers neck. I just couldn't see Around me, I could not see ahead of me very far. I couldn't turn my head so I can see to the left or right of me. A lot of the time, I was just staring at pavement and trying to save a life because in the eastern United States, east of the Mississippi, there really aren't any shoulders on most roads. We're really lucky out here out west where there are bike lanes everywhere, there are shoulders that are five to seven feet wide. In the eastern part of the United States, the infrastructure for cycling is definitely not like that in the West. And there were times when I was riding in the Appalachians with logging trucks and cars just whizzing by me at maybe 35, 40 miles per hour with only like two or three feet to spare. And it was pretty scary In addition to traffic, there were at least 100 dogs that were chasing me through Kentucky. (laughs) Everyone has a dog in Kentucky, and they don't seem to have any leash laws out there. So that was definitely an interesting experience. It was, yeah, not quite as pleasurable, but that was mainly due to just my injuries. I had Schirmer's neck. I also had numb hands. Numb hands is something that the majority of racers had in the Trans Am bike race. For example, a couple months ago, I did a poll on Facebook, and I think, I want to say it was at least 70 or 80% of the racers who had finished the Trans Am bike race had numb hands for weeks after the race. Wow. Yeah, that's got to be rough. Sitting
2: there trying to go back to work or something and uh, dealing with numb hands the entire time. Trying
0: to tie shoes or open jars or even snapping the button on my pants I mean really? that was even kind of hard for a couple weeks but ultimately my my hands recovered as I think it did for most people it took my left hand about seven and a half months to regain off feeling. my right hand it took about two months but apparently that's not too abnormal I do have to say that I've never gotten numb hands in any other road race I've done I, during the tour divide. I got numb hands after like the first day, but that's mountain biking mm-hmm. during other road races, never gotten numb hands until the trans and bike race. I think what did it was riding through Wyoming, which just had horrendous roads. There were expansion joints like every maybe 20 feet in the road and you're riding along the highway and it's this thump. <laughs> oh. Oh. And after that that's when I started to feel a little bit of numbness in my hands.
2: Wow, can you imagine the the guys back in the the Paris-Brest Paris with the, the solid tires hitting bumps like that the entire time. I'm sure the road conditions weren't weren't even close to what we're used to these days, but Absolutely. Can you the, I don't even think the I mean, roads
0: were paved back in the early days of Paris Eris.
2: Yeah, 'cause Yeah, because, yeah, I forget when you said that started, but you're probably right. It was old enough. Around 1890. Wow, geez, yeah. There you go. That's a brutal race. <laughs> so what are what are some good tips for people to kind of get into shape? I mean, obviously, you can be athletically into shape, but you might not be tuned to riding these kind of distances. So what are some things you want to pay attention to?
0: Right. The most important thing for purchasing a bike would be bike fit. Like it doesn't matter how expensive the bike is. If it doesn't fit you properly, it's not going to be optimal. So you can either enlist the help of a good bike shop to help you with bike fit, or there are some formulas on the web or in books. For example, Greg LeMond, he has a book that I read when I first bought my first real road bike that you determine your inseam and you multiply it by, I think, some crazy number like 0.65. And that would be the distance from the center of the bottom bracket to the top of the saddle. That's a good guideline. And then there are other general guidelines for reach to the handlebars. So bicycle fit is really important. You want to have that nailed down in the beginning because if the bike doesn't fit you properly, you know, that could cause you problems down the road or make you not as efficient as you possibly could. But other than bike fit, I think it's just important to get in, especially if your ultimate goal is to do these ultra marathon bike races is to spend time in the saddle and to bust out these long rides. Like, you know, you don't have to be doing it every single day. You don't even have to be doing it every week, but it's important to get in good distance rides, especially before the Trans Am bike race. You want to be comfortable doing 200-mile bike rides if you want to be competitive. Like If you just want to finish and you know, there are some people finishing in 40 days, which is still very respectable, then, yeah, you don't have to be biking 200 miles, but you want to be logging the miles, especially if you want it to be competitive. Right. Right.
2: Well, I imagine I mean, to me anybody that rides across the country, 4200 miles, has my respect anyway. I don't care how long it takes you to do yeah, it. <laughs> Good for you
0: for doing yeah. it. 30 days, 40 days. You know, it's it's really all academic and my hat goes off to anyone who can do this. It's it's really a great adventure and it's it's a great sense of accomplishment when you get to Yorktown.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, I'm sure. Well, before we run out of time, I want to touch base uh, on the Tour Divide a little bit. Um, so you rode this in 08, oh, and I think I I think I mixed up the dates earlier, but it was a Tour Divide that you rode in 2008, and that was the inaug- inaugural year, right?
0: Yes, it was the very first year. There's a movie about the race called The Ride the Divide. It's a great documentary. I would highly recommend it for those who aren't even a cyclist. It's just beautifully shot. It's a great storyline. I'm in it for only a split second, but it was the very first year of the Tour Divide, and the Tour Divide actually is nowadays considered kind of the granddaddy of these bikepacking races. It's really what has made these races gain in popularity, especially once the movie came out. And at the time, the Tour Divide, the course it just seems so ridiculously difficult just with the weather conditions, the climbing It's 90% off road. There are no services, especially in New Mexico, but there are stretches of just hundreds of miles with no services. So it was something regarded as like almost impossible. And I'm really attracted to the sort of, Challenges and I hadn't done much mountain biking up to that point, but I had been doing a lot of long road cycling rides. So I entered and it turned out to be, I would say, probably the number one adventure of my lifetime. Really? Yeah, it was just an incredible experience. Just, yeah, trying to race the continental divide from Banff to Antelope Wells. It was just uh, an amazing experience. Probably. The one I would remember even more than the Trans Am bike race.
2: Huh. Yeah, I think of uh, of all of the bike races out there, or even tours. I think that's the one that would be at the top of my list to uh, to attempt. I like the format. I like that it's self supported, and there's really you know not not much in the way of rules. You just ride as long as you ride the route that everybody else rides. It doesn't matter, and you know you don't have to ride this in the the what what are they what do they call the big uh, leave-off? There's one point in the year where everybody goes, but you're allowed to actually ride this and compete in it kind of on the honor system any time of
0: year, right? Absolutely. You can do it as an individual time trial where you can take off on your own any time of year. And yeah, you can race this. You can even set up a satellite tracker so that people can see where you are. That's actually encouraged so that... uh, you can have your time verified and so most people they ride it together the tour divide starts generally the second week of june is around the same time as the trans Am bike race but if you're so inclined you could ride it on your own right. any time of year right
2: yeah i'd like to do that one that's pretty cool and i'll point out that a even in that one, 2008, I think you had 17 people compete in that one, and you still finished sixth in that one in that inaugural year. Or so congratulations on that one, too. Thank you. That's a pretty good accomplishment. So how are you outfitted uh, to do this? I, I have always, um, since I was a kid, I thought putting a mountain bike and... Uh, I guess a bike back then, there weren't really mountain bikes when I was a kid, but putting a bike together with the backpacking essentials and going on a bike pack trip was always something I've always wanted to do. And now we see bike packing is uh, is taking off. I mean, it's really booming right now. So a bike packing trip like this, obviously you're not wearing a big, heavy backpack uh, backpacks like some of us might have thought you might <laughs> you might have to right. back then. There's a lot of gear out for it. So how are you outfitted uh, in order to do this? Because you don't have a ton of room to, to take a lot of stuff.
0: Absolutely. And in both races, I wanted to be at least somewhat competitive. So I was trying to keep weight down to a minimum. I think my rig in the Tour Divide was only about 37 pounds and that included a 26 pound mountain bike. So I basically only had 11 pounds a year. I did splurge on a couple of things like a one person, big Agnes tent made in Steamboat Springs. I called that a splurge because basically everybody else was using a bivy sack that only weighed like half a pound as opposed to, my tent, which weighed, I think, just under three pounds or so. So back in the Tour de bite bikepacking wasn't nearly as big a, a thing, and I kind of had to come up with my own ideas for how I was going to outfit my rig. I used a heavy-duty rack, and I strapped to the rack both the tent that I mentioned and a dry bag of my clothes, and I did wear a camelback-like backpack. It wasn't very big, but it was something that I could keep food in. And I also even used that same pack for the Trans Am bike race, although I did ship it back to myself or back home when I reached Newton, Kansas. And then I had nothing on, on my back. But a general rig that people would use nowadays would not use a rack. They would just use a bike packing very large saddlebag that straps underneath your saddle that has a massive capacity for clothing, for food. And then a lot of people will use frame bags within the triangle of the frame. They might mount additional water bottles, but in terms of what gear they bring, especially those that are being competitive, you try to bring the bare essentials. There were some people who weren't even bringing a toothbrush. Now I was bringing a toothbrush. (laughs) I was actually brushing my teeth and even flossing almost every single night. But there are people who were like, screw it. It's it's only a few weeks. You know, I can go (laughs) without that. Wow. And so, I mean, that's the extent some people can take. And really for a trip like this, yeah, you don't need too much gear because it's held in summer most nights are going to be warm enough aside from maybe the times you're at elevation that you don't really need a lot of extra clothing as in terms of like a sleeping bag in the tour divide i think i had the warmest sleeping bag of anyone during that race mine went down to i think 20 or 30 degrees whereas most people's the rate of temperature was maybe 45 degrees or even 50 degrees. Right. My bag only weighed maybe like 0.4 pounds more than theirs. I was kind of glad I had it because there were some sections of the Tour Divide where I did get caught in some really cold areas. So I stayed comfortable every single night. In the Trans Am bike race, I actually shipped home my sleeping bag when I reached Newton, Kansas, because I just wasn't using it. I was sleeping on top of my sleeping bag instead of in it virtually every single night and then i thought once i got past wyoming i was going to need it at all it turned out once i got into the Appalachians and i hit some torrential downpours where i got caught in my bivy sack that wasn't waterproof that's when i started to regret that um yeah i didn't really have any warm clothing you know i didn't have my sleeping bag i actually had shipped home my rain jacket which was a huge mistake also <laughs> But, um, yeah, you, so you need to strike a balance between not caring too much to weigh you down, but enough to stay comfortable enough that you're not wasting energy to shivering some of these nights.
2: Right, right. Yeah. It's important to to be warm because that's when you need to get to sleep so you can regenerate for the next day. So it's, it's probably worth taking a little extra weight just to, to have that. Absolutely. Well, I have to ask for the last question. um, I don't know if it's the Tour Divide. I don't know if it's the uh, Trans-America race or or another race. Which one would you rank that you've
0: done as the hardest race that you've done? It's a really good question. And I go back and forth debating in my mind, but ultimately I decided that the Trans-Am bike race was more difficult for myself. Now, if people who have done both races disagree with me. I can totally understand, but for myself, because of the distance and also because of getting Shermer's neck, which I didn't get during the Tour Bike. <laughs> yeah, good point. It made it more difficult. That and just the comfort level was a little lower in the Transcend bike race because you're riding with cars almost all of the time, whereas. During the tour divide, you're off-road 90% of the time. You're out there in nature. And even though there are other dangers to contend with, like, for example, there's bears out there. There's other wildlife. You might hit snow in some regions. Like, during the 2008 tour divide, there were actually, like, five hike-a-bike sections where I was pushing my bike through snow for hours. (laughs) But (laughs) during the Trans-Am bike race, even though I have to say... I was remarkably lucky with the drivers giving me courtesy on the road. So I don't think I really had any close calls on the road, but accidents do happen. And I know during this year's Transcend Bike Race, there were a lot of accidents. I think the first day one person already landed in the hospital, got hit by a car. Uh, there were several other accidents I heard about. There's one guy that had been involved in a hit-and-run accident, and he was going to abandon in Newton because he came into the Newton bike shop just bleeding from his head. But he ultimately carried on. So I think because of the distance, because of my injuries, and because of having to contend with traffic, I would say the Trans Am bike race felt a little bit more difficult. I think I also was trying to be more competitive, during the Trans Am Bike Race, the Tour Divide, I really was just focused on getting to the end. I mean, I was trying to be somewhat competitive, but I was sleeping a whole lot more during the Tour Divide than the Trans Am Bike Race.
2: Yeah, yeah. Tour Divide, it seems like it's it's probably a little bit more relaxed mentally. You don't, like you said, you don't have to deal with the stress of the the automobiles out there, but just in the environment that you're in day in day out, it's gotta it's gotta do a lot for your for your mindset as well. So I can see that. I see where you're coming from. Yes. Very cool. All right, Felix. Well, that was uh, that was a quick hour. I loved hearing about these two rides, and uh, I'm sure the listeners did too. And we mentioned your website uh, earlier on, but I wanted to mention again. It's FelixWong.com. It's F-E-L-I-X-W-O-N-G.com. Uh, go check out Felix's website. He keeps an excellent blog with all the adventures that he's done, which is uh, far, far more than anything we've talked about here. I mean, all of the other things he's done he's done is listed up there. Um, but go check it out, see what he's up to, and uh, follow along with him, and maybe he can uh, help you out and get you started in, in one of these uh, adventures that he's done. So, Felix, thanks so much for sharing your stories with me. I appreciate your time.
0: Thank you very much, John. This has been a great pleasure. It was awesome. Thanks, bud. Have a good evening. You
1: too.